So let's say blessing. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshanu B'Mitzvotav B'Tzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah. Amen. We have a double Torah portion this week like we did last week called Acharemot and Kedoshim. Acharemot which is chapters uh, 16 through 18 of Leviticus, which we're not going to look at today because I follow my, my heart to where, and we're going to be looking at Kedoshim, but it, Achorimot means after the death. After the death of Aaron's two sons, and it picks up from there. And, oh, well, chapter 16 of Achorimot. Achrimot is page 770, actually. I'll get you there. 770? Yeah. And this is the chapter that we traditionally read on Yom Kippur as well as this week because it describes the Yom Kippur ritual in the wilderness with the two goats, the one that is the scapegoat, and you lay your, all the people's sins on it and then send it out into the wilderness, and the other goat that you sacrifice, it's the whole Yom Kippur ritual. And then, chapter 17, chapter uh, 17, um, talks about... Um, uh, basically about, again, being careful with blood. And then chapter 18 is all of the sexual boundaries that m- must not be crossed. And again, I don't want to focus on that right now, but that's what happens in Mot. And then we get to chapter 19, which is the next chapter, which you'll find on page 798, and that's actually where I want to uh, focus today. Were you going to mention why there were two? Oh, sure. Um, In any Jewish year that's not a Jewish leap year, there are eight portions which are paired. So there are four double portions. Um, and the reason for that is that the lunar year only has 50 weeks in it. But when there's a Jewish leap year, you add a month. You add an extra moon. And that uh, means that you need extra Torah readings. So during the leap year, these four double portions get split up so that there's a portion to be read during a leap year month. That, did that make sense? That's why. <laughs> <laughs> and is, it, is, it, is there a reason that it's this week that we have... I think... Now, so most of the double portions are... Three of them are in Leviticus. One is Tazria and Metzora, which deal with all those skin afflictions. The next one is Acharimot and Kadoshim, which deal with all the sexual um, misconduct and this sublime portion right in the middle, which will lead us to ask the question, because you'll find, we'll get to that question. And then, um, Bahar and Bechukotai, which are the last portions of 
Leviticus, where Bahar is this exalted portion, and Bechukotai is about all the things that are going to happen to you if you don't fulfill the covenant. So I have a feeling they stuck the least... The, I, I actually have a feeling they sort of stuck the less um, elevating and uh, portions in with a better one throughout Leviticus. And then the other one is Matot and Masay at the very end of Numbers, which are also two underwhelming parshas. So why not just knock them off in one week? That is my um, unscientific sense about which ones got chose to be double portions. Um, I think it's a reasonable theory. Because when you read the contents, some of them are, are like, and now you shall, in Matot it's like, go in and um, proscribe, which means destroy everything of the tribes that you're about to uh, conquer and, um, uh, what's the word? You're going to take over their land. To, oh, take over their land. You're going to do cheyram. You're going to... So it's like, it's not a pretty portion to read and it's one I love skipping. So it's like that, I think. Um, <laughs> I wonder. I wonder if the committee that was doing this uh, had those conversations. Let's, let's just slide this one under there. And, uh, <laughs> I think so. And the reason I think so, there's also a tradition. There are two Torah portions. Uh, one is called Chugotai in, in Numbers, and the other is Kitavo in um, Deuteronomy, which have these extensive descriptions of what's going to happen to you if you uh, don't follow the covenant. And they are grim. And you, in, traditionally in synagogue, those are chanted hurriedly and in an undertone. You know, it's like, we have to read the Torah, but we don't, didn't say how we have to read it. <laughs> <laughs> so that is my theory. Uh, and I think, it, and my theory is self-serving because I think that's how we should read Torah. So I can attribute it to, to the ancients and then I'm golden, right? <laughs> Okay, so this chapter, chapter 19 of Leviticus, turns out, amidst all of this other stuff, to be the centerpiece of Leviticus and the centerpiece of the Torah. It's basically in the middle, if you'll note, uh, and in the scroll it's very close to the middle of the Torah, and it contains this this chapter contains what is known as the holiness laws. Now, and it's compared um, accurately, appropriately, I mean, to the Ten Commandments. Because at the beginning of the, at Mount Sinai, God says, um, if you fulfill this, these commandments, you will be to me a nation of priests and a holy people. A goy kadosh. So this idea of being a holy people is what God has brought us out of Egypt to become. And it's not a holy, it's, I think it's important and I think it's real that it's not a holy individual, not a holy man, but that holiness is something, some quality that we're meant to uh, be able to manifest in the community of Israel. It's based on, therefore, our behaviors um, towards each other and towards God 
in the center of the camp. So the Torah makes no distinction between um, uh, ethical treatment of one another and ritual fulfillment of, you know, we're the kind that Nadav and Avihu didn't do, right? The ritual fulfillment of what's required in the inner sanctum so that God's presence is in our midst. And holiness, so holiness seems to be a category that in the Torah that, that, that covers or spans both ethical and ritual fitness. Or the word that's used in the Torah is tehorah, purity. Uh, um, uh, so I wanted to point that out, that, uh, that holiness includes ethical behavior, but more. And the root of kadosh means to set aside for a special purpose. Right? In Hebrew, in English, the word holiness, holy, comes from the word W-H-O-L-E. Somewhere in, 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 somewhere centuries ago, the W fell off, right? So wholeness is what holiness means in uh, English, and wholeness in the sense of something that's set apart and has its complete integrity, is whole, is also what it means in Hebrew. Uh, that's why when we say the whole earth is holy, that's when we're having an experience of the wholeness of all creation. But in the human community, it's something that has to be um, forged. Right? It exists, you know, we say, well, well nature is just some magnificent whole wholeness. The whole world is filled with God's glory. But in the human community, uh, holiness is fractured continuously because we don't treat each other as part of the same whole, right? So the creation of being a holy people is our challenge. I want to point out also... Can I ask, yeah, are, sure. Are Kiddush and Kaddish related to... Absolutely, Kaddish? because Kaddish means to sanctify okay. or to make holy. So Kiddush, when you say the blessing over the wine, is you're sanctifying the holy day. And uh, Kaddish is the prayer that you recite to sanctify God's name. Yit Kadal B'Yit Kadash, Shemei Rabbah, magnified and sanctified. That's where the word Kaddish comes from. Yit Kadal B'Yit Kadash. And, uh, and then, so there's Kiddush, there's Kaddish. Uh, the, the, those are all the same. They're all the same root. Kadosh. Kadosh means is the holy. Mm-hmm. And if you know Hebrew, the opposite of kadosh is chol. Hamavdil ben kodesh lechol, we say at Havdalah time, who separates between what's usually translated as the holy and the profane, or the holy and the ordinary. The interesting thing about the word chol is um, a chol is a puncture or a hole like a chalil, which is a recorder, is called a chalil because it has holes in it. And um, so there's something about chol not being bad, but not being unbroken mm. s- s- holiness. 
right? It's got it's it's it's. Uh, sometimes I think of it as uh, hole is great because our analytic minds do that. That's their job. We punch holes in things. We see what's inside. We but the other part of our consciousness is when we see everything as one perfect, magnificent whole. And if you think about the six days of creation, those are the days of whole, of differentiating, of separating, of etc., etc. But then on Shabbat, God looks at everything God made and calls it holy, blesses it and calls it holy. So it's as though, not as though, I understand it as being that these are two ways of perceiving the world that we that aren't bad, aren't wrong, right? Uh, th- but if you profane the holy, then it's just like puncturing a balloon. It's like, mm. psh, it's gone. So ha- holiness is a state of consciousness. And it's the state of consciousness in which you sense the presence of the divine within the world. Mm. Um, as soon as you profane that, that consciousness is gone. And it's like, psh, like the, 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 what's the word I'm thinking of? In theater, the illusion has been shattered, mm-hmm. right? The, it's like you're in the story and then somebody coughs or their cell phone rings. They have punctured that moment, yeah. right? That's what I'm talking about. So uh, once again, chol isn't bad in Judaism. It just, it interferes with the quality of holiness that we want to be able to experience. If we experience that quality of holiness enough, then, God willing, we can carry it into our ordinary activities. Um, But we have the Sabbath always there to return to if we've lost our our bearings with all the details, if we've gotten, if we've lost the forest for the trees, is what we would say. I think it's a very good explanation, actually. Uh, So, the goal for Israel is to be holy because if you can create that holy space, then God can be present in your midst. Is that why God wants, um, when you set up the... The The tabernacle? The part of the tabernacle, Mm -hmm. that it has to be unblemished... Yes. um, uh, uh, ...sacrifices, Mm -hmm. that clothing has to be... Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's where, again, the analogical thinking that this is the place of wholeness, yeah. and so everything that comes into it has to, has to be whole. And so it extends to laws about priests that if they're, if they're gimpy or deformed, mm-hmm. they can't serve there. Now, we would say today, because we don't think that way, yeah. it's not that they are saying that that, that gimpy or de- deformed person is bad or wrong, but they don't represent symbolically, you know, the, the quality that's needed to maintain the holiness. So yes, in biblical mindset, everything reflects everything else. And so that which serves in the sanctum has to be whole and unblemished. That's right, exactly right. And that goes back to the skin diseases. When the skin gets mottled, and loses its integrity, that's the word I was using, mm-hmm. it too indicates that you've lost your capacity to, to be part of the holy community, mm-hmm. something about you. Um, and that's how the biblical, again, we can translate that without it having to um, affect physical appearance, yeah. Yeah. 
but they were doing it not as a shunning or as a moral judgment, as far as I can tell, but as their requirements in the way they organized the world. Um, those, though people who look different or strange have been shunned forever and ever. We know that. We're working, we're working on it. Um, good. So then let's see what the requirements are in uh, chapter 19, because this is, the, this is, along with the Ten Commandments, this is the central iteration of how we're supposed to behave. And I may, I may we'll see how far we get. I do, I'll save time at the end so we can get to the climax, which is verses 17, 18, 19. We'll get to that. But I want to look at the whole portion. And yod spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the entire Israelite community, the whole Israelite community, but it's not the word holy there, mm-hmm. but right. the entire Israelite community, and that's important, because there's no way you could speak to part of the Israelite community and tell them, you shall all be holy. That It has to be everybody, and that's what elevates this, along with the Ten Commandments, because when God says, speak to the entire Israelite community, that's significant. Uh, not just the priests, not just the elders, right? And say to them, Kedoshim tihiyu ki kadosh ani You shall be holy, for I, yod your God, am holy. So the reason to be holy is so that, because yod because which is the energy of all of life unfolding, is, is holy, and if we want to be a vessel for that, we have to figure out how to manifest this quality amongst us in our very compromised state of being made of earthly impulses, elements, desires, lusts, passions, right? This is a tall order. How do you sanctify all of your impulses? It doesn't mean don't have them. Suppression doesn't work. So this is the great challenge of becoming a righteous person, a tzaddik. Is, uh, it says, who is a gibor in the Pirkei Avot? Who is a true, truly mighty? One who masters their impulses uh, t- t- and channels them towards this, this uh, elevated goal. <sighs> I wonder how I'm doing today. <laughs> I, need, I needed to breathe a little before the beginning of class. <laughs> I like that you, we were talking about the vessel, because when you were talking earlier about holy, I just saw the vessel. With, a vessel is really no good when it has a hole in it. Exactly. And to be holy, it, it, it has to hold. It has to... And um, uh, I forgot what else I was going to say, but... That's I, beautiful. I'm hearing what you're saying. Well, so, and I want to add that, therefore, if you don't have... If your vessel is leaking all over, if you're leaking all over people, <laughs> um, we have some value systems. Let it all hang out. This is not it. There's a lot to manage and channel in our beings. Letting it all hang out, which is, I practiced all through my 20s and was a great research experiment. Wasn't going to, and I learned a lot. In other words, there's a time for everything. Um, was not a long-term strategy. <laughs> it was a learning strategy, but then I had to learn how to contain 
Well, let's just say I spent that time discovering my insights. That was crucial. But then I got to the point where, okay, now I have to learn what to do with it. Mm. So I'm not condemning anything I did. It's like I had to grow in that level of self-awareness so that I could do the next thing. But that is not, that is only a stage on the way to being able to be a, a vessel that has integrity so it can hold that's right. Yeah. And know when to dispense and when not to, and all of those questions. Yeah, I hear you. I, I, I just rem I remember when I was, you know, when you were saying to be, because uh, we are to be a reflection. We were created in the image. Good. And that, I guess, is, it sounded what, like mm -hmm. uh, what you were saying before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, one of the things about being in the image of God is that God, there are many, many references to it. It's more like a, a center node that we can think of in a million different ways. But one is that God is the one who, who both creates, but then sets the boundaries on creation so that the world can continue to exist. Because if God just let the waters go everywhere, or let the, these creatures just be everywhere, or that... So part of the understanding of God is God, one of God's great abilities is called Gevura, which means the power to limit and define. And that's part of our capability, too, that allows us to manage a very complicated world. Yeah. I have a question. Yeah. My question is, is God the God of all people or just a specific group of people? Um, it's pretty clear from the Bible that God is the God of creation yeah. who has chosen the Jews to be the vanguard of what it means to be a holy community. Okay. Does that make sense? That seems to be the clear message of the Torah, that the Jews aren't nothing special. Yeah. In fact, we sin as much as everybody else. The Torah repeats that over and over again. It's like, choose somebody else, please, God. Uh, and that, but that, according to the, the, our sacred myth, we, and I call it a myth because you know how I operate. I know. We have been chosen to show the world, the and given the Torah, to show the world what... Uh, it might be like the possibility of humans manifesting ethical and moral holiness. So, but God is clearly the God of all creation, okay. um, who has chosen us for some. God only knows why. Yeah. <laughs> um, and here come, and a lot of these they're not in the same order, but you shall revere your mother and your father. Keep my Sabbaths. And then it says, I am yod heh vav -Heh, your God. Do not turn to idols or make molten gods for yourself. I, yod heh vav -Heh, am your God. Well, actually, now that I'm reading that, I'm thinking um, that idols, idols, oh, I'm sorry, we're on 798. And we just read verse 3 and verse 4. When you think about idols, they are by definition limited subsections of the whole. Right? That's the definition of an idol, um, is that it's something that you've made with your own hands. That's a false god. So uh, it's clear that if God's saying, you shall be holy for I, Yodhevavi, am holy, so don't turn to false gods because I'm the, I'm the energy that you want to be able to uh, sustain amongst you. Um, 
And then five through eight, it says, when you sacrifice an offering of well-being to the eternal, sacrifice it so that it may be accepted on, the, on your behalf. It shall be eaten on the day you sacrifice it or on the day following. But what is left by the third day must be consumed in fire. If it should be eaten on the third day, it is an offensive thing. It will not be acceptable. And one who eats of it shall bear the guilt for having profaned what is sacred to the eternal. That person shall be cut off from kin. <sighs> okay, the, the, this is hard to wrap our minds around, this one. But um, did you want to say something, Esther? I'm sorry, but I can't wrap my head around something. And that is, um, it, with Abraham and with Isaac and with Joseph, this is before the Exodus. Right. So we're... Was were they like? Um, was he was God allowing himself to appear before these people because he was looking for a group with whom he could work? Understood. Understood. He chooses Abraham and calls Abraham my friend because Abraham seems to uh, be the one who gets. That there is a there is a master of justice in the universe, mm -hmm. um, uh, but this is a real problem for traditional commentators because they say, "But wait a minute, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob didn't have the Torah. How could they follow the commandments?" And the general thrust of traditional commentary is that Abraham was so tuned in to to essentially the natural law, the natural and moral law of the universe which is how he discerned the oneness of God in the first place, that he had it in his being. being. That's the traditional explanation. Okay. I have a different story I like to tell, and not to contradict that at all. That's the traditional explanation, okay. um, which is that I see the Torah as um, a um, developing plot, a developing hmm. narrative in which... First, God makes the world and makes human beings in God's image and says, and forgive me if you've heard me talk about this before, and says, oh good, I did it. I made these human beings. Mm -hmm. And then by the time of Noah, everything has gone to hell. Yeah. And God says, I'm going to wipe it clean and try again. So, God has, so humanity is this experiment that God is making. God may be all-knowing from one perspective, but from this narrative perspective, God is like a creator, mm -hmm. which is another. God is a creator. Yeah. And God gets interested in what if I endow some of my creatures with some of my divine qualities. Mm -hmm. um, and he takes the earth and he blows God's spirit into it. None of the other creatures have sake and God blew God's spirit right. into it. So God's spirit is understood to be the part of us humans that is conscious and can think and decide and manipulate and right. create and destroy. And, but the experiment is failing because we're made partly of the earth. Right? We're not pure spirit. We're not pure concept. Yeah. And, and so God then says, but I, I like Noah because part of the story of the Torah is that God loves God's creation and so can't just wipe it out and puts Noah in the ark and the whole story and starts over 
when Noah comes out of the ark, but says in chapter 9 in Genesis, well, God said to himself, it says, God, that's what it says, I see that the workings of human beings are evil from their youth. And so I'm going to make this covenant with Noah. And he says to Noah, God says to Noah, here's the deal, no murder, don't rip flesh from animals, have courts of justice. And these are called the laws of Noah in the Jewish tradition. Mm -hmm. And I'll put a rainbow in the sky to remind me whenever I see you guys messing up that I promise not to destroy the earth again. Mm -hmm. And then the narrative continues, and within ten generations, everything is depraved again. Tower of Babel, all of it. And then God says to God's self, I know, Abraham, I'll I'll reveal myself to Abraham. Hmm. And that gets into process um, uh, God's will in the world through Abraham and therefore through through his progeny. And that's the promise God makes. But then we wind up in slavery. And so there's one more idea. I know, I'll give them a Torah. Because maybe Abraham got it, but Abraham's unusual. People need instructions. Yeah. And Torah in Hebrew, in English, means instructions. Yeah. And so here, I'll give them the Torah. And then they can finally have the instructions they need to build, to be the way I meant it to be, where, they, where you shall be holy, for I am holy, and I made you in my image. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like God is the perfect concept that takes, tries over and over to see how to make that perfect concept manifest yeah. here in earthly, messy affairs. Yeah. <laughs> and so we are the ongoing experiment in that context of the narrative of the Torah for creating a community that manifests that holy energy of God. Okay, good, thank you. And I see it actually as a beautiful mission. Yeah. Because then, Isaiah says, you shall be a light unto the nations. And this confirms how I, how I see ancient Israel up to this day, you know, seeing our, our, our mission, our, our place in the world. Yeah. You shall be a light unto the nations, bringing the prisoner out of the dungeon and the blind out of darkness. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's our mission in the world. Yeah. Um, and that's my story, uh, having of how I how I see this travel. And now the next many chapters are about the children of Israel, <laughs> right. rarely living up right. to what has been uh, what they has been commanded of them and what they have agreed to do. Because at Mount Sinai they say, "That's right, we'll do it. What we will do it. We will listen and we will do it and we will listen and we're going to do it." And then they fail consistently, which for me is again what makes Torah really magnificent, is that it's just about us. Right. Uh, Us humans. Us humans. It's it's our sacred myth trying to describe what we aspire to and what screw-ups we constantly are. Um, That's one of the main stories of the Torah. Um, So, so, 
Let's skip these verses about the sacrifice of well-being. They're complicated. And, uh, and go, go on to 9. Because this gets, this, it gets much clearer from here on out. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap all the way to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not pick your vineyard bare or gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I, Yodhei am your God. So this is about, this is how, the, if you were a landholder in ancient Israel, you had wealth. If you didn't have any land, you, you had no, no means of production. And so, they had, so ancient Israel, one of the keys is, if everyone is made in the image of God, then everyone must find a way to live with dignity and have enough to eat. So the way they did that back then was, was that they were required to leave the edges of their field unharvested. If they dropped sheaves when they, were, when they were harvesting, they had to leave them on the ground. If they harvested grapes and some, bu- some of the bunches fell on the ground or were remained unpicked because they weren't completely ripe yet, they couldn't come back and clean them off. And then the poor and the stranger, that is the people who didn't have a source of food, could come with dignity, right, and, do, and harvest the, the edges of your field and the leftovers from your crops. It's not a perfect solution, but Torah is not looking for an, a um, socialist society. That's not Torah. Torah is looking for a society, uh, benevolent. a benevolent society, yes, good word. Um, and so this is a key to holiness. And the, 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 the Mishnah, the rabbis, really expand on this. And they say, there are some commandments that have no upper limit. In other words, you can't do them too much. And they say, this is one of them. You can, leave as, you can decide what a corner is. There's no upper limit to how much you can leave unharvested or uncollected. In other words, there's no limit uh, to... Um, uh, how much? How much charity? How much you? It's how much you pr- pr- provide for the folks who have no means of production? Rabbi, yeah. I just want to say, when you look at uh, Google Earth and you look at the farmlands, the modern technology, because what they do is put a post in the middle of their square and irrigate it. Yeah. So it actually leaves the corners. It's such a beautiful image for me every time I see it. Oh, that's nice. Because they actually get more irrigating it like that, which leaves all the corners empty, you know, uh, not in the circle of watering, whatever is there. It's just always, it's like, it was like a full circle moment of that. That's beautiful. Yeah. I love seeing that from yeah. the airplane. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but today, that's not how our society operates. Yeah. And so the question then is how to manifest that quality in a way that Judaism is very clear, and so are other traditions, uh, where people can get what they need without being shamed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that that's our communal responsibility, because holiness will only manifest in a holy community. There's no such thing as an individual who's holy, because it's, holiness occurs 
in the interaction between. Right? That's where God is felt, in the between people. Um, and Yes? So, actually, I thought of the second thing. Um, the second thing I thought of is for people who might be interested and may not know, in Socrates and presumably elsewhere, there's um, a long spoon collective. I've heard about this. And, and so it's, I think, the second Shabbos of the month. Um, they, there, there's free food, but also free seedlings for people who want to plant their own. And it's a gathering of people who want to have an exchange, but not necessarily put in, but be able to have mm-hmm. what's extra. Um, that's one thing. But also, a few years ago, um, every year we have a Mohan Preserve Conference, and one was on hunger in the Hudson Valley. Uh-huh. And the farmer said, we would be glad to donate the food that we have. We can't afford to harvest and donate. We can't afford wow. to So we have for a number of years now had gleanings. You have? Yeah. Th- why didn't I know about word. that? Yeah. Family puts out the word. It's not on, you have to just, it's kind of ad hoc. Yeah. Right, mm-hmm. right now, strawberries, mm-hmm. apples, potatoes, whatever, and folks gather and glean, and some of it goes to kitchens. Right. Some of it gets processed into a product, apple cider, apple wow. to go mm-hmm. to pantries. Wow. Ruth, I'm so, would you, would you let me know more about that? Because I think my family would love to do you that. Your family would love to do it. It's fun. You go out. I know it's fun because, yeah. you know, you're not doing it for the just, by just the sweat of your right. brow. You're just going out for a few hours yeah. and then yeah. giving it away and keeping a little ice yeah. pose. Yeah, and yeah. your pocket. Yeah. I made tomato sauce yeah. for, for like two full days with them. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's that beautiful. I want to. I want to know more about that. Yeah, beautiful. A little early in the season. Yeah, I know. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, so, um, you know, there are many Jewish traditions. I'm sure. Again, other cultures have theirs, but about how you do this so people don't feel shamed, because it's so important that they that their dignity be intact in the Jewish understanding because that's someone made in the image of God. So, you know, in the traditional shtetl, they would have often a room with a box in it. And during a big gathering, people would go into the room one at a time, the side room, and either take or put. So that you never knew who had put, who had taken, and someone who... Isn't that a beautiful... And they would take or put... Money. Yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was a money box where you'd go in and you didn't, and nobody knew whether you were putting in or taking out. There's a beautiful children's book about that, actually, that uh, talks about that box. My grandmother kept a box that she would give to the rabbi when the rabbi came. The tzedakah box. Tzedakah box. Right, right. Right, right. Our tzedakah boxes were all uh, Jewish National Fund uh, pushkas. Yeah, but yeah, that's, that's the tradition. Yeah. I have just for this last period, well, and other periods, been so emotionally difficult that, aside from Arthur Waskow and folks like that, that, but that religious leaders have not spoken up about this. You know that 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 I think it's if people want to not be generous, that's one thing, until they say that they're Christian or whatever they're saying they are, and then nobody seems to speak out and say, no, you can't. You can't say you're Christian and take food away from people, mm. you know, and let people. You can't do both, and and the fact that people um, who are in the position where they should be required, 
to speak up, aren't speaking up regularly every time it comes up, <coughs> you know, that there's no pushback saying, you can be selfish. I mean, I think, you know, that is almost, you, you know, that, but then you can't also say you're following this. That's right. For Ben Carson to tour uh, uh, public housing yesterday and praise the public housing he found which, where the beds were most cramped and unpleasant because he said he doesn't want poor people to get too comfortable. What? I'm sorry. This is our housing and urban development uh, secretary who grew up poor. Um, uh, is a profanation. It's a profanation. Right. It's, it's, it's a profanation of uh, everything the Bible teaches. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, I'm sorry, Anne. I didn't mean to ruin your day. <laughs> yeah. On... Uh, of the good side of that, yeah. you brought this conversation brought back a wonderful memory to me. Um, I've said that to you that I've had little or no upbringing from the time I was born. Um, and in Jewish traditions, in Jew yeah. Yes, I had the family. Yeah. And that was wonderful, but I didn't have the ritual on the right. Mm -hmm. But in my house. Above the sink was a windowsill, and on that windowsill was the little blue box. Ah. And that little blue box was always being filled with coins mm -hmm. by my parents. Mm -hmm. And then it would be empty, and then it would be reappear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they were, were part of the charitable. Jewish people, and they n knew they should do that. Oh, that's beautiful that you remember. Mm -hmm. So verse 11 says, Lo tignovu, do not steal, like in the Ten Commandments. And then it expands on it. Lo techachashu, do not deal deceitfully. For lo techachru ish ba'amito, and do not deal falsely with one another. Now, techachru is just like in the Ten Commandments, don't be an aid shaker, do not be a false witness. So deal falsely. And do not swear falsely by my name, just like the third commandment, profaning the name of your God. See, there's that word, chilalta. Mm -hmm. So if you invoke God's name when you swear, and when, you make, when one makes an oath or a promise and calls God as a witness, and then doesn't follow through, you have sullied the integrity of the divine. That's the understanding. That's why some Jews don't practice, never even take an oath. We're discouraged from taking oaths because we're understood to be so fallible that uh, instead, just tell me what you're going to do. <laughs> don't swear to God. <laughs> but um, that's the basic understanding here. And in Hebrew, you see that word, chilalta, at Shem Elohecha in verse 12. That's that word chol, chilel. Chilal means to profane, to puncture, to uh, um, um, desecrate. Yeah, to desecrate. And uh, that's why anyone who knew, grew up with any Yiddish knows what a chilel Hashem is. Chilul Hashem is a desecration of God's name. So if you did something really nasty, or rotten, or insulted, you know, someone would say, that's such a chilel Hashem. Mm -hmm. Whereas, if you do something that brings more holiness in the world, the Yiddish and Hebrew word is kiddush Hashem. 
sanctification of God's name. Kiddush. Like Kadosh. Kiddush Hashem. Um, so I wanted to point that out to you. Uh, and then it says, in verse 13, you shall not defraud your fellow. And Israelite there is because um, our translator wanted to be accurate. This is about the holy community. It doesn't mean you should defraud somebody else, but this is integral to what it means to be creating a holy community. Uh, do not defraud your fellow, and do not commit robbery. And then this one. Lo talin pe'ulat sachir etcha ad boker. And the wages of a laborer shall not remain with you until morning. Okay, because it's clear from the Torah that laborers are day laborers. And that they don't have anything. And they are, they are like, they are, they're day laborers. They don't have a land holding. Uh, they're like the poor and the stranger. Uh, and so if you don't pay them their wages at the end of the day, you've basically stolen from them. This is in the whole section about robbery, fraud, and withholding wages. So this is the beginning of labor law, uh, quite seriously. Um, there's other places in the Torah where it says if somebody of, like, of this ilk needs to borrow money from you, and gives you their cloak, their, their, their clothing, their covering in pledge, you must return it to them in the evening. For what else can they sleep in? Mm. So even if they've given it to you as a um, collateral. collateral, you have to give it back to them, or else mm. their means of eating, their means of being warm, are taken away from them. You can't do that. Like helping and hurting at the same time. You can't treat other people that way. Uh, because they're human beings. That's why. Because they're human beings. And the invocation will always be, remember, you were slaves in the land of Egypt, where you were not treated like a human being. So holiness requires this fundamental acknowledgement that each person is made in the image of God. And if you, if you, if you uh, desecrate them... You desecrate God, and God can't be present in your community because holiness is absent. Uh, and then two lines, uh, the, in line 14, are amazing ones. You shall not insult the deaf or place a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God. I am yod heh vav so I think I've stay on that page for a minute because I think I've always told I've mentioned many times that when commandments are made that involve one's treatment of the powerless, um, or commandments are made like you can insult the deaf and place a stumbling block before the blind, not only without them hearing but without anybody knowing, right? This is something that has it's like. Nobody sees this. They might, but they might not. So you're not accountable. The blind person will never know who put the stumbling block there, and the deaf person will never know who's dissing them. But God will know. In other words, God is the default protector of the, pow of the, of the powerless, because didn't I make them too, says God. 
how can you desecrate my creation like that? Um, the rabbinic tradition takes placing a stumbling block before the blind and expands it to say you can't um, someone who's trying to quit drinking you can't like hey just have another drink if somebody is um, um, morally challenged you can't say hey come on let's just do this one more thing no I'm trying to you know you can't do it that's the yeah, that so was my question was, and I think you, it, so it does, it goes, I didn't know if I stretched it or if I got it from you, but it goes to not to lead someone into temptation. Exactly. Right? Like one time my neighbor told me he always left the keys in his car. Right? And I thought, how can you do that? Right? Somebody's walking by. Oh, right? oh. They may not be into stealing a car, but they just kind of see the keys in the car. Right? Uh-huh. Like, Interesting, because the person, the neighbor, never thought about it that way. No. Right. No, it was just convenient. Right. 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 Don't lead people into temptation. Do not place uh, a stumbling block before the blind. Where, wherever our weak place is. Right. Or their weak place. That's how the rabbis interpret this. Um, but of course, that's the, the goal of that interpretation is not to then negate the plain meaning of the text, but to right. use it as a beginning point. Yeah. Including, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm fascinated by the insulting the deaf. I mean, what, what's the difference? They can't hear, yeah. But everybody picks up the vibe. Yeah, or uh, that's a human being. It doesn't matter if they can hear you or not. Um, it matters that you're creating a holy community. Right, right. Okay, let... What the commentary says, it says, the law prohibits the ugly practice of making fun of the disabled and, and it just, you know, it's, I always think of it like, you know, don't do it just because you can. You know? That's another thing. Yeah. Don't do it just because you can. You have a higher calling that you're being, that's being, you know, that's what you've, you signed up for it, Israel. You signed up for this. So you can't do this anymore. Yeah, I remember when I stopped telling Polish jokes and I stopped, mm -hmm. I, you know, it's, I was just a teenager and slowly, slowly I had to clean it up, you know. Um, now you have to just tell two ethics. Go or, you know, uh, the <laughs> jokes are still funny without... Uh, <laughs> two ethics, right? Yeah. That's what they do now. Um, okay. And then next page. Now, in terms of how we treat people, listen, you shall not render an unfair decision. I would translate it, you shall not twist justice. Um, do not favor the poor or show deference to the rich. Judge your kin fairly. Um, this one's really deep. I mean, it's speaking to judges, but it's also speaking to the whole Israelite community. So it must also be addressing how, how we judge. I figure. I mean, it's a, so, uh, not, of course, our tenant, you can't, you can't be sympathetic to a per person and give them a pass on upright behavior, and you can't be swayed by someone with a lot of influence, which is uh, more difficult. I mean, but it's saying, no, it's not just the rich 
that you need to watch out for being uh, wanting to suck up to. It's also your pity for the poor, and you make them less than human by assuming they're not capable of the same kind of righteous and just behavior that's expected of everyone, because they're unfortunate, because they're miskinim, because they're... Uh, I think it's really deep. It, to me, it says treat everybody like the human being that you want to be treated like. I bet the poor part, I think, is hard. It's very hard. But when do you say it? You know, because you don't want to be, a, you don't want to be like a cold-hearted, you know, exactly. at the same time, and you want to be understanding. I mean, it's clear that uh, if somebody steals in order to feed their family, is that a crime? I mean, all these are real questions. But I think what's going on here is do not just assume that they're incapable because of their, because of their uh, disadvantage. Right. It's so deep. Like expecting the best. It's really deep. These get harder and harder as we go on here. <laughs> it's like, okay, here's the next one. And this is very hard to translate. Do not deal basely with members of your people. Lo telech rachil ba'amecha. Do not be a talebearer, is how it's often translated. And do not slander. Uh, uh, deal basely. So, rachilut is uh, slander in Hebrew. And it says, lo telech rachil. So, um, this verse becomes the foundation of one of the most extensive treatments in Jewish law, which is how to speak in a way that doesn't destroy or demean other people. This is a huge field of ethical inquiry in Judaism. And we'll talk about it a little, I think, if we have time. Um, and then it says, Lo ta'amod al dam recha, ani Adonai. Do not profit by the blood of your fellow. I am Yod Hey Vavre. But the Hebrew is unclear. Uh, oh, look down at the note, um, and you'll see uh, down below on eight hundred. Do not profit by the blood of your fellow. That is, do not act in such a way that you profit by another's death or injury. That is one stream of um, interpretation of this line. Literally, do not stand upon the blood of your fellow Israelite. Precise meaning the Hebrew phrase is uncertain. So one of the, the stronger traditional explanation is do not stand by while another's blood is shed. Do not abandon someone who is in danger. And the reason this becomes uh, um, the, the more common understanding of this verse is because of what follows, uh, which is making it clear that we are totally responsible. We are our brother's keepers, mm. right? Uh, so that's why I prefer the... We don't know for sure, but I prefer the translation that says, "Do not stand idly by, while your neighbor's blood is, be while your fellow's blood is being shed." Uh, in other words, there are no innocent bystanders. 
How could there be in the thrust of what we're being asked to do in this chapter? Do you follow what I'm saying? It's like this to me feels like a natural progression. Uh, there are no innocent bystanders. Um, and then it says, you sh- the, and this, it says, Lo tisna et achicha bilvavecha. Do not hate your kin in your heart. Rather, and this is where I would put, I would put comma and say, rather, reprove your kin and thus incur no guilt on their account. Reprove means admonish. It means interrupt what they're doing. Right, so this one gets really hard. Don't hate them in your heart while they're acting like a jerk or breaking the law. What an asshole. Right, and just leave it at that. Rather, you have to find a way to admonish them and get them and try to get them to alter what they're doing or what they're about to do. That's what a real friend does, right? Um, this, is, this is even harder. <laughs> this one's like way, like this is like the, the, the double uh, black diamond slope, you know? <laughs> standard here um, you know in the I guess it was in the 80s this whole idea of the me generation was 70s born. 70s and so you didn't look out for your fellow man you looked out for number one and, and uh, self-actualization self-fulfillment that whole, right that language that took over our culture which I was right. completely absorbed in yeah yeah basic ways of behavior of what you how you behave in a community right what's but your responsibility right on on the simplest level in a neighborhood where that's functioning where everybody knows each other's kids you see somebody who's not your kid and you say hey 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 i'm going to tell your mother that's right. you know that's what this is that's what this is about on that level um so how does that coincide with um honor your parents? Do you reprove your parents ever? Um, your parents would be included in this. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, because not to do so would be to dishonor them. Right. right. Okay. Um, but the question then, I talked about the extensive literature on what hurtful speech is because that is such a complicated question. Um, then, the even more so, and I'm fascinated by this, is the Jewish treatment on wh- how you should admonish someone. Because if you shame them, you fail. So this becomes a true subtle art form. And there's an incredible amount of discussion about this because we are being asked to do something that is so challenging, which is to get to interrupt other people when they're doing stuff that's wrong. Oh my God. But the alternative is to hate them in your heart. And that ain't, sorry, 
That's not how you, no holiness in that room. There's just not going to be any holiness in that room. So in order to manifest holiness, you've got some hard work to do sometimes. We. One does. Um, and this is, this is the, so what this is, this is like the, our whole lives, once we have enough to eat, and, uh, you know, all the other stuff, in terms of being a holy community, are taken up with these ethical questions. That's why, uh, did you ever hear Rabbi Ira uh, Eisenstein say that, uh, uh, was it Ira who said this? I've attributed to him. I think it was. Judaism is a 3,000-year-long discussion on ethics. Um, he would say that. Um, he also said the Talmud is a 400-year-long meeting, and those are the minutes. Because <laughs> when you read the Talmud, it's like, what the heck were they talking about? Yeah. Um, but it's a 3,000-year-long discussion on how, you how we treat one another so that we can create a holy community. And this is, this is, this is where we take our, our starting point. And so if you imagine this as a, sort of like you imagine the Constitution and say the Bill of Rights or the men, and, and, the, and then you look at the jurisprudence that's emerged from it and the conversation about what that constitutes, this is the kind of pithy, basic instruction that then we have to figure out how to, how to, how to manifest. Uh, so I see 17, even though our translator put it in two separate phrases, I see it as a um, a, uh, a sentence of two clauses. Don't hate your kinsfolk in your heart. Find a way to reprove your kin. Because if you don't, you're partially guilty. We need to write people Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You're partially guilty. And that lines up with the previous one, which is um, do not stand idly by when your neighbor's blood is being shed. So when they're in danger, step in. When they are putting someone in danger, step in. That's our job. Uh, and then, verse 18 is the climax. It says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against members of your people. Love your fellow Israelite as yourself. Love, I have to, and I'll, I, those of you who have heard me before know why, he put this translation in here. But for now, say, love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yud Hey Vape. So, again, if you're new to Torah, that's where love your neighbor and yourself comes from, as yourself comes from. It comes from this sequence of commandments, which for me makes it incredibly powerful. Uh, because we're being given instructions for what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, uh, which is behave in these ways, uh, and this will come because one of the things that's been pointed out for a very, very long time is that it says "vehavta le reecha kamocha," and what that literally means is show love to your neighbor as yourself. It uh, as yourself, um, and kamocha like. Yourself. It's a compound word. Yeah. Um, like when we say, mi chamocha, who is like you among all the powers. Uh, yeah, yeah, it comes from that. But 
the, the point to make here is that love is not a, um, love here is a transitive verb. It's an active verb. It has love too, because it has this, this, uh, this um, uh, preposition afterwards. Um, so it says, it doesn't say, love your neighbor as yourself. It says, love to your neighbor as yourself. And this is important because to love can be used in either way in Hebrew. But this is the transitive, active form of loving. So love your neighbor as yourself is a form of behavior. It's not a feeling in this context. Um, though it ranges into feeling, don't, sin, don't hate them in your heart. But the antidote to hating them in their, your heart is acting lovingly. Um, and you can act lovingly even if you're not quite feeling like it. Right. Right? You don't have to wait to be in love with that jerk. You know. <laughs> uh, but there's no bystanders. Um, <laughs> well, I like unpacking this chapter with you. I think it's really important. Let's take two more minutes to show you why it says here, love your fellow Israelite as yourself. And again, some of you have seen this teaching before. We're gonna, we've run out of time, but if you go on and turn the page to 802. Sorry, 803. It says in verse 32, you shall rise before the aged and show deference to the old. You shall fear your God. I am the eternal. Okay? So once again, whenever I found that whenever it says you shall fear your God, it's because there are no consequences. Um, you could just get away with this. Right? They're feeble. They're old. Yeah. Right? They can't beat you up. They, they like... Um, and uh, so, and then it says, when strangers reside with you in your land, you shall not wrong them. The strangers who reside with you shall be to you as your citizens. You shall love the stranger as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I, Yodhe am your God. There's that refrain again, because the stranger... Once again, the stranger doesn't have a land holding. The stranger doesn't have a patriarch or a clan. We've talked about this many times. The stranger is the resident alien. And so what's in it for you? And yet, this is where both fear of God and memories of being oppressed, being the stranger, are invoked. But, well, as I've talked before, what blows me away about this is that they didn't say, love your fellow human being as yourself, and they left it at that. They said, love your neighbor as yourself and do the even less likely thing. <laughs> because if you, and I've said, forgive me, for, I've taught, taught this before, but if you love your neighbor as yourself, that's because there's an economy of giving and receiving at stake here. Mm. Treat them the way you want to be treated. But the stranger? Huh. So, it's not even about reciprocality because that's not what's being asked to be a holy people. What's being asked to be a holy people is to see in each person the image of God, which has nothing to do with reciprocity. 
It has to do with seeing the, the divine spark in each person and practicing treating them with the dignity and love that they deserve and respect because of that, because God made them that way. And uh, that is what's going to allow, that, that unconditional positive regard is what's, it's not, it's not because therefore they're going to treat me that way. That will be the hoped for result because that's the nature of things, but that's not why you're doing it. Not so you'll be treated that way in return, but because that's what we're put here for. That's how we're going to manifest. By us manifesting that unconditional regard, God can be present because we've created a space of wholeness in which the wholeness, our interconnection can be uh, manifest. And um, many teach that love your neighbor as yourself is because um, when, from one perspective, the biggest perspective, your neighbor is yourself. From the perspective of the oneness of all creation, we are all sparks from the same source. We all come from the same divine flame. And so if we can manifest that level of consciousness, then we're loving our neighbor, Kamocha, who is you. Right? And that's a beautiful, beautiful interpretation. But there are many, many interpretations. But I wanted to point out that that's why our translator made the point of saying it's not love your neighbor in some generic sense in the Torah. It, it's even harder. It's love your neighbor and love the person who's just who's passing through, who's not you know, doesn't have, you have no stake in it all. So this for me is the heart of the Torah. Yeah. I didn't want to throw us off and I know we're closing. Well, we're going to close, but go ahead. I'm closing, but, and this isn't where, this isn't the sensibility that we've been, but we really aren't finding any, and this goes back to being a stranger in Egypt. Yes. And I'm not seeming to have any archaeological evidence of that. Is that right? Which is so because it comes across as so real. That's right. It's such an incredible no story of how we came to be. It informs everything about how we're supposed to view the world. Yeah. But there is no historical corroboration. Zero. There really is. The only mention of Israel in Egyptian sources is a particular uh, victory pillar that a pharaoh of about that period set up that mentions Israel as one of the peoples that he has conquered. And that is so far the only archaeological uh, historic. Uh, historic mention. Uh, the earliest archaeological finds in ancient Israel, there was a very exciting find that's from about 900 BCE in the north that mentions the house of David. Right? And an inscription up in Don, at a, in an ancient Jewish uh, archaeological site up in Don. That's it. We have no corroborating record. What we have is this unbelievably compelling story that sets up a worldview. Yeah, we believe. Isn't that amazing? So I, like to so I like to think about it as some slaves escaped from Egypt, and out of that, their inspired leader, Moses, created this view of the world that God is on the side of the voiceless. And 
that we have to then remember that at all times and in order to build a society where God can be present. Because if we ignore part of you, the, if we ignore the powerless and the stranger and the widow, uh, then we're ignoring part of God. And we can never actually manifest holiness unless we do so. So we'll never know the origins. I have no reason not to think that some piece of early Israel were escapees from us from bondage. You know, I mean, why would they make the story out of whole cloth? I mean, I don't know. So, it's a, so to me, it's just because there's no archaeological evidence doesn't mean that the the the, the kernels of this story aren't based in the, our ancestors' experience. But then the story becomes something that you can affiliate yourself with and you become part of Israel. I think historically, Israel grew by people joining and saying, now this is our story. Yeah. Uh, I've never been a slave, <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, passing it on. It's cool, isn't it? It is. It's so amazing because it's so real. Like, I know. As, I know. As, but it, it, like, the resonance is so powerful. Yeah. It is, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Well, I hope you appreciated that. Uh, I um, I did most of the talking, but that was great. That was great. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.